Well, it's hard to believe next weekend is July 4th. Can you believe that? Summer is flying by. And if you're like most Americans, at some point on July 4th, you're going to drive somewhere and you're going to gather together with a lot of other people and you're going to watch a fireworks display. Now, fireworks are cool, but they became, became even cooler for me uh, once we had kids, just to see the awe in their eyes as the lights were going off, the brilliance uh, of all the fireworks. Now, I want to tell you this morning, we're going to look at a passage that dwarfs the best fireworks show you have ever seen in your life. In the Bible, it is called the transfiguration, a big fancy word. Now, I got to say, when I first became a Christian, I first started reading the Bible, this story was always a little bit confusing to me. Like, what exactly is going on here? Why is Jesus turning white and all these other things happening? But the more I've grown, the more I've studied this passage, the more I've been amazed at what Luke and the other gospel writers are telling us here that happened to Jesus. And I think you're going to be amazed at this story as well. Before we look there, though, let me just remind you where we've been as a church family. Since January, we have been walking through the gospel of Luke together in a series called The Life of Christ. Chuck mentioned it earlier, one of the main questions we keep seeing come over and over and over and over again in this gospel is, who is this man, right? If you've been with us week after week, people are asking the question, who is this? Who is this that has the power to even calm storms? Who is this who has power over physical sickness and disease? Who is this who has power to cast out demons? Even last week, if you were here, we saw Jesus ask the disciples, who do you say that I am? And Peter respond, you are Christ, you are the Messiah. This question, who is this, keeps coming up again and again. And I gotta say, we've had bits and pieces of it answered all throughout our time here in Luke. But this morning, we come to the penultimate text that is gonna tell us just exactly who this Jesus is. Like, there can be no more doubt about it. So, take your Bible with me and turn it to Luke chapter 9, and we're gonna be looking starting at verse 28. We invite you every week, if you're visiting with us this morning, if you don't have your own Bible, we have some available for you there in the seat underneath you. In fact, if you don't own a Bible, we'd love for you to take that home as our gift to you. And we'd love for you to follow along in this incredible story. So you can find that on page 724 in those black Bibles there. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to read this whole passage, and then we're going to pray together, and then we're going to break it down. Sound like a good plan here? So Luke 9, starting in verse 28. About eight days after Jesus said this, and that's referring to last week when Jesus said, yes, he's the Messiah, but he's going to suffer. He took Peter, John, and James with him and went up to a mountain to pray. As he was praying, the appearance of his face changed, and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. Two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor talking with Jesus. They spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. Peter and his companions were very sleepy, but then when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. As the men were leaving Jesus, Peter said to him, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And I love Luke's little parentheses here, right? He did not know what he was saying. While he was speaking, a cloud appeared and covered them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. A voice came from the cloud saying, this is my son whom I have chosen. Listen to him. When the voice had spoken, they found that Jesus was alone. 
The disciples kept this to themselves and did not tell anyone at that time what they had seen. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Oh Lord, let us not be asleep like Peter, but wake us up this morning to the reality of who you are. We pray as Moses prayed so many years ago. Show us your glory, Lord. Show us your glory as your people. Amen. Well, as I mentioned, this passage was a little confusing to me when I first became a Christian. Like, why is Jesus turning white? What's going on with all the light and so forth? So to understand it, we have to go back a little bit in history and do a study of the Old Testament. Are you up for a little history lesson this morning? I can tell you're so excited. I'm going to try that again here. Are you up for a little history lesson this morning? You know I like history, so just pretend. Just pretend, yeah. In the Old Testament, there are several instances when the glory of God shows up in a manifest way. You may have heard this word before. It's called the Shekinah glory, the manifest, visible presence of the glory of God. And the way God's glory would show up would be in a cloud, in a radiant cloud. Now, I'm not talking about the kind of clouds that are outside in the sky this morning. I'm talking about a brilliant, overwhelming, knock-you-down-on-your-knees, luminous cloud. This cloud was a visible sign, a representation of the majesty, transcendence, greatness, otherness of God. The people of Israel first saw this cloud, the Shekinah glory, when they left Egypt and were headed for the Red Sea. If you remember the story, this is called the Exodus. There's a whole book about it, right, in the Bible. The Exodus is where God liberates the people of Israel from slavery, from bondage in Egypt. And he does this, he leads them with his glory cloud. In the daytime, this cloud looked like a pillar of smoke. At nighttime, it was this luminous, intense Fire. It's described this way in Exodus 13. By day, the Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to guide them on their way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light so that they could travel by day or by night. Later in the story, you remember the Egyptians realized what a big mistake they've made. We've just let our entire labor force go free, and so they begin to pursue them. And with the equipment they had, the horses, the chariots, they were going to catch up and completely destroy the Israelites, except for the fact that the glory cloud of God got in the way. You read in Exodus 14, these incredible words. It says, then the angel of God, who had been traveling in front of Israel's army, withdrew and went behind them. The pillar of cloud also moved from in front and stood behind them, coming between the armies of Egypt and Israel. Throughout the night, the cloud brought darkness to the one side and light to the other side, so neither went near the other all night long. How awesome is that, right? The glory of God making a buffer between the Pharaoh's army and the people of Israel. After crossing the Red Sea and God giving victory over Pharaoh and his armies, the glory, God, the glory cloud continues to lead the children of Israel to Mount Sinai, which is where God had told them to go so that they could worship him. And so they show up at the mountain and Moses says, get ready, consecrate yourselves, prepare yourselves to worship the Lord because he's going to show up in a real powerful way. And so three days later, sure enough, we come to this incredible scene in scripture. This is really one of my favorite chapters in the Bible because it just reminds us of the transcendence of God. It says, on the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain. There it is again. And a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled. 
Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace, and the whole mountain trembled violently. As the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and the voice of God answered him. What a powerful picture. The people trembling at the presence, at the glory of God. Moses then ascends the mountain. No one else is allowed to, to receive the law. But you know the story. When he comes down from the mountain, what does he discover? The people are made an image, a golden calf, and they begin worshiping that. And God says, enough with these people, right? I'm not going to lead you anymore with my glory into the promised land. And Moses says, well, if you don't do that, we have absolutely no chance. So he pleads and he begs and he prays and God agrees that he will continue to lead them with his glory. And then Moses, as I referenced in my prayer, makes the boldest prayer, in my opinion, recorded in scripture. He says to God, we just read about his glory in Exodus 19. He says to God, now show me your glory. Like that's a bold prayer. Show me your glory, this glory that caused the people of Israel to tremble at the foot of the mountain. God actually agrees, but tells Moses, I can't show you my full glory, for nobody can see my full glory and live. But they make a compromise. And we read about it in Exodus 33, again, just an incredible passage. Then the Lord said, there is a place near me where you may stand on a rock. When my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft in the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will remove my hand and you will see my back, but my face must not be seen. We're told in scripture that in awe and worship after this, Moses is up on that mountain for 40 days fasting, not eating or drinking. He rewrites the law on new tablets of stone that God gives him and included as a part of this law, God gives him direction, give the people of Israel direction how to build the tabernacle, or it's also called the tent of meeting. He gives very specific instructions. When you come to this part in the Old Testament, you're like, what is this all about, right? Very specific instructions, because that is where his presence, where his glory is going to dwell among the people. So Moses comes down, they build the tabernacle, and before I get there, when he comes down from the mountain, do you remember what happened to Moses' face? It's like radiant. It's glowing so much so the people beg him to put on a veil. Why? Because he's been with the glory of God. He's been in God's presence and his face is radiant because of that. So the tabernacle's built according to God's plan in an incredible moment at the end of Exodus, the Shekinah glory covers the tabernacle, symbolizing God's presence with his people. It's described this way in Exodus 40. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Whenever it was time for the Israelites to move, what would happen? The glory cloud would lift out, lift up from the tabernacle and it would set and all the people would pack up and they'd follow the glory, the glory cloud of God. As the centuries passed, the time finally came. You remember David prayed that, oh Lord, can I just build a place for you to permanently dwell? Can I build a temple for you? And God said to David, no, that's going to be your son is going to do that. So Solomon builds the temple, a permanent place for the glory of God to dwell. And on the dedication day in 2 Chronicles chapter 7, look at what happens. When Solomon finished praying, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices. And here we see it again. 
and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. The priests could not enter the temple of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled it. When all the Israelites saw the fire coming down and the glory of the Lord above the temple, they knelt on the pavement with their faces to the ground and they worshiped and gave thanks to the Lord saying, he is good. His love endures forever. Like this was the highlight of Israel's history right here, right? Sadly, if you know the rest of the story, it doesn't take them too long to turn their backs on God and begin worshiping other gods. And eventually, eventually, again, I'm skipping many, many years here, the prophet Ezekiel has a terrible vision that's recorded in Ezekiel 8 through 11 of the glory of God departing from the people of Israel, from the temple. Let me just share a little bit about this vision here in Ezekiel 10. Just look at some of this. It says, Now the cherubim were standing on the south side of the temple when the man went in, and a cloud filled the inner court. What, what's the cloud? The glory of God. Then the glory of the Lord rose from above the cherubim and moved to the threshold of the temple. The cloud filled the temple, and the court was full of the radiance of the glory of God. Later in Ezekiel 10, he keeps describing this. Then the glory of the Lord departed from over the threshold, of the temple and stopped above the cherubim. While I watched, the cherubim spread their wings and rose from the ground. And as they went, the wheels went with them. They stopped at the entrance of the east gate of the Lord's house and the glory of the God of Israel was above them. And then in chapter 11, we read, it's gone. The glory of God has departed Israel. And for the next 600 years, Though the temple was destroyed and rebuilt again, though godly men and women came and went, the glory of God was not seen in Israel again. That is until Luke chapter 9. Would you read verses 29 and 34 out loud with me on your notes there? It says, As Jesus was praying, the appearance of his face changed, and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. While he was speaking, a cloud appeared and covered them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. What's going on in this passage? It is the Shekinah glory of God returned. Think of it. The pillar of cloud that led Israel out of Egypt, he's here. This is the cloud that passed by Moses when he was covered in the cleft of the rock. This is the same glory that made itself known as the tabernacle was finished, so filling it with God's glory that Moses couldn't even enter it. This is the same glory that filled the temple so that the priests couldn't even enter it. It's the same glory that Ezekiel saw rise from between the cherubim and move out from the temple. The glory of God has returned. The glory of God has returned. If you're following there on your notes, what is this story all about? Well, Jesus is the very glory of God. That's what it's all about. Everything signified by the pillar of fire or the glory cloud of the Old Testament, guess what? It's fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus is the pillar. Jesus is the cloud. He is the glory of God. What is this transfiguration story about? It's about Jesus' veil, the veil of his humanity being lifted for just a little bit so that we could get a peek into who this man is really is. He is no mere man. It's like in Luke, if we've been going through this, people are wearing sunglasses, right? They're seeing a little bit of glimpses about who Jesus is. They're seeing more and more of who he is, but in this one moment, recorded in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the sunglasses are lifted up, 
and we're staring face to face with the sun itself. Overwhelmed by his radiance and glory, the glory that was always at the depth of his being, that he was veiling in his humanity, surfaces. Now, when Moses came down from Mount Sinai, you remember what happened? His face was radiant because it was reflecting God's glory. Moses was like the moon who had spent time with the sun. The moon, of course, reflects light from the sun. Moses was reflecting the glory of God. Is that what's going on here? No, we're told the light comes from within Jesus. There's no reflection going on. He is the light. There's no flashing down from the sky. This light originates from Jesus himself. His body, his clothes, his face emanate this super brilliant, glorious light. What that means is the glory cloud in the Old Testament was only a partial representation of the full glory of God. In Jesus Christ, we now have the full representation of who God is. And that's why the author of Hebrews writes in this amazing place in the New Testament, these words I've printed on your notes. Let's read them out loud together. It says, The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. So the question we've been asking week after week after week is who is this man? He is no mere man. He is the very glory of God revealed for all to see. Now, if this is actually true, if this happened, then there are two huge implications for us this morning. The first implication, if Jesus Christ is the glory of God, if he is the exact, perfect, unsurpassable, final representation of who God is, means that he is not just one more prophet like Moses or Elijah. He is God himself. This is emphasized in this text when Peter makes that odd statement. I always wondered what this whole thing was about, right? When he says, Master... Let us put up three shelters. That same word there is the word tabernacle. Let's put three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Peter is saying, I'm going to put up three tents. Why? Because we got like the hall of fame of faith here, right? We got Moses, we got Elijah, and we got Jesus, who we just discovered last week is the Messiah. Let's have three tabernacles. Let's keep this good thing going. He did not know what he was saying. Luke says, right? But immediately what happens after this is this cloud comes out and a voice from heaven, the father says, this is my son, the chosen one. And then don't miss this. When they look up again, when the disciples look up again, what do they see? Jesus standing there alone. Here's what the transfiguration is telling us. Jesus stands alone in history. He stands alone. Jesus is not just another prophet or teacher or sage. He's not going to fit into a tabernacle. He's not one among many. He is not just the Messiah, though he is that. He is so much more. He stands alone. The reason Moses and Elijah are there, you wondering? It's because they're sort of a summary of the entire Old Testament, right? Moses representing the law. Elijah representing the prophets. Together, they're a summary of the entire Old Testament. But Jesus is the fulfillment, And so he stands there alone as he says himself in Matthew 5, 17, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Jesus stands alone. 
This means Jesus is the focus of everything. Jesus is the focus of the Old Testament. Jesus is the focus of all human history. Jesus is the focus of eternity. Jesus is everything. This would be a good time for an amen. The glory of God has been revealed to his people. In Luke 10, the next chapter, Jesus makes this statement that's pretty amazing. He says, I saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Like, what kind of person says something like that? Seriously. What kind of person says, you know, before the world was created, before the material universe even existed, I was around? I knew Lucifer before he became Satan. I saw him go bad, and I remember the day he fell from heaven. What kind of person would talk like that? Like, if what Jesus is saying right there is true, then he is infinitely more important than any prophet who ever lived, including Moses and Elijah, right? If what he says is false, though, he's either evil, trying to trick people, or he's just crazy. He's delusional. Listen, the one thing you can't say about Jesus, implication number one, right? The one thing you cannot say about Jesus, though our world is sending us this message over and over and over again, is that he is just another great prophet or teacher or sage or whatever. He is not one among many. His claims discount that completely. He is, as C.S. Lewis said, either a lunatic, a liar, or he's Lord. If this happened, if the transfiguration happened, if he really is the glory of God, he's either a liar or a lunatic or he is Lord. Have you woken up to his true identity like Peter needed to? Peter saw just part of who Jesus was, the Messiah, but he was asleep to his full identity. When will we come awake? And when we come together on Sunday mornings, we come to worship the glory of God revealed in the person of Jesus. Now, the second implication of the transfiguration is that God's entire plan for you and me, his entire plan for the human race centers on Jesus. I always used to wonder, you know, like, what are Elijah and Moses talking about? How would you like to have been part of that circle? Hey, hey guys, what are you guys talking about? Well, it actually tells us. It says they're talking about his departure. Now, I wish the newer versions of the Bible actually used the word that actually is. Do you know what the word is? Some of you might have a little footnote there on your Bible. They were talking about his exodus is the word. Like That gives me chills right there. When else do we hear the word exodus? Does that sound familiar at all? When God led the people out of slavery... Moses and Elijah are talking about Jesus' exodus from this world, and it says that he would bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. What are they talking about? His death, his resurrection, and his ascension to the right hand of the Father. An exodus that wouldn't just lead to physical freedom. An exodus that would lead to freedom from sin and death. The thing that has kept human beings in bondage since almost the very beginning. Again, I hope what you see here is that this is telling us that Christianity is different than any other religion on the face of the earth. Listen, all religions say at some point there's something messed up in this world, right? Whether you call it sin or they use different language, something's gone wrong. And we need something, we need God. 
And there's different ways to go about coming to God. All other religions say, I've got to bridge the gap between me and God somehow. Whatever God is or whoever that is. But Christianity tells us that God is actually going to do that for you. He's going to bridge the gap. God is not just this transcendent, great, magnificent, old guy with a beard sitting on a throne in heaven, like we sometimes picture him, right? And I'm going to get to him somehow. No, God stepped off of the throne. The very glory of God stepped off of the throne, humbled himself, became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Moses only liberated people from economic and social oppression, but Jesus, he's going to liberate people from sin and from death once and for all. Just, he's not God on the other side of the gap. You don't work your way over to him. He's worked his way over to us. The glory of God made flesh. How does he do this for us? Well, we're told here he's going to take the path of suffering and pain and death, the path that every human being has been enslaved to since birth. As we talked about in Jesus' baptism a couple months ago, if you weren't here, but the words the Father speaks are very similar in the baptism to the ones here, and they have all kind of allusions to the Old Testament. When he says to Jesus, this is my son, he is referring to Psalm chapter 2, verse 7, which is a prophetic text talking about one day there is going to come a king who is going to conquer. He will come in glory. But when he says, whom I have chosen, he's referring to Isaiah chapter 42, verse 1, and further on in Isaiah, which is talking about a person called the suffering servant. Christianity is such a paradox here. Jesus is such a paradox. We can't put him in a box. We can't put him in a tent. He is the conquering king who is going to suffer for his people. That's who this man is. He is the lion and he is the lamb. Now in Revelation, we're told one day Jesus is going to return in his full glory. Isn't that going to be something? No more clouds, no more veils, no more sunglasses. But he is first going to follow the path of obedience. The suffering conquering king because he knew this was the only way that he could accomplish the exodus we so desperately needed from sin and death only by dying could he give us life now friends i don't know what you do with a text like this but i think there are really two applications or responses we need to make the first one is actually given to us in the words of the Father, which makes my job as a pastor a whole lot easier, right? I don't have to pull this one out of thin air. If the two implications we just talked about are true, that Jesus is God and Jesus is God's plan for salvation, and if you have personally recognized Jesus as the very glory of God revealed, and that he did for you what you could not do, he brought you into an exodus from your sin and death, then what does the Father say to us? What's the last words in that? Listen to him. Sounds like pretty good advice. Like if this is the glory of God revealed, if he is who he says he is, listen to him. Now as you know, there's a world of difference between hearing and listening, right? Every husband in the room right now knows what I'm talking about. 
I can hear my wife when I'm watching TV. It doesn't mean I'm listening. What's the difference? Well, listening always involves responding. Listening always involves responding. In the same way, I want to tell you, you can sit here week after week. You can hear the word of God. But you may not be listening. You can get up every morning and you can open up your Bible and you can hear the word of God. You can see the word of God but you may not be listening. If you want to write something down, write this. Listening to Jesus means submitting my life completely to his authority. Like doing what he says? Living how he lived? We've been talking about the way of Jesus. That's one way I can listen. Live the way he lived. Care for people the way he cared for people. Show compassion where he showed compassion. Care for the least of these. These are ways that we listen to him. Given who he is and what he's done, how can we not submit our lives to him? Not half-heartedly, not just when he suits my purposes. Listen, this is the very glory of God. And he has brought me into freedom. What better incentive do I need to live a holy life than that? I don't live obediently because I'm trying to prove something to God. You don't get it if that's what you're doing. He's already proved himself to us. And now I simply listen to him and believe that he really does have the best life in mind for me. And so I'm gonna do what he says. I'm gonna live the way he lived. Not half-heartedly, but with a whole heart. And that leads to the second response here to Jesus, if this is who he is and what he has done, which is worship him. Now, don't get me wrong. I was just talking about worship, right? Worship is a whole life thing. Worship is obedience. We worship God every day by the way we live our lives. But right now, I'm talking about expressing our worship, like getting down on my knees in awe worship because the glory of God has been revealed in Jesus' worship. Like, unashamed worship like David who was dancing before the ark as the glory entered into Jerusalem. Like every time in scripture the glory of God shows up, what do his people do? We read it. They worship. They don't go through the motions. They're probably not complaining to Miriam about the song she chose. They don't offer lip service. They worship. Like, well, what else can you do when you're confronted with the glory of God? God's glory demands it, and so they sing. They pray, they lift up their hands, they kneel, they clap, they shout, they respond. Yep, they even dance sometimes. They do this corporately as his people, because what else can you do? When you're confronted with the majesty and greatness and transcendence of the glory of God. Now listen, when we express our worship here on Sunday mornings together, the glory cloud is most likely not gonna descend on us. But that's because something better has. The very glory of God in the person of Jesus Christ has made himself known to us and we have the privilege not to come get my needs met every week at church but to express my unadorned worship to this one who is all glorious, 
Uwen has led me in an exodus that I could not lead myself. An exodus from sin and death. We're going to get a chance to continue to express our worship to him here in just a moment. But let me just say a couple words about that. For some of you, singing is a little awkward or you see people raising their hands, you're not sure that's you, that's fine. I'll just say to you, think about, experience, imagine if the glory of God were to enter this place right now. I believe it is. What kind of response would I give to him? Maybe you want to come and just kneel in awe here at the stairs. Maybe you want to lift up your hands for the first time and see what that's like. Maybe you want to clap. Maybe you just need to sit and pray and meditate and contemplate. Maybe you need to confess, I haven't been listening to him the way he deserves me to listen. There's no one right response to the glory of God. We're not asking you to do something and then you've proven yourself that you're worshiping. You do what the Lord has led you to do, but you worship. We're gonna worship. And as we start that, I'm gonna ask you to stand and we are gonna read the words that Christians have read for centuries together about this amazing person, Jesus Christ. These are words from the Nicene Creed. Will you join me as we declare these truths together this morning? It says, we believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten not made of one being with the Father. Through him all things were made. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven by the power of the Holy Spirit. He became incarnate from the Virgin Mary and was made man. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day, he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. Let's worship. I tell you about the mystery of the gospel? John writes about this fact that when you come into a relationship with Christ, his glory now dwells in you. And so church, I would just encourage you as you step out these doors, bring his glory. Bring his glory wherever you go. Let your light shine bright. Be light in this world. If you need prayer this morning, we'll have our prayer team down front. Maybe today is the day when he has revealed himself to you and you want to know what a relationship with him would look like. We'd love to pray with you about that, to come alongside of you, to talk to you about some next steps on how you can grow. So we'll be down front for the rest of you. Let's be the church this week and let's revel in the glory of God. God bless you.